returning uh, for the last time, God willing, uh, to the book of Jonah tonight. And uh, the book contains four chapters and it can be neatly divided into two parts. Uh, in the first two chapters, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to prophesy and Jonah uh, goes the other way and God brings his wayward servant back to himself. And then in chapters three and four, God's word comes to Jonah a second time. He recommissions him. And now Jonah does go to Nineveh and he preaches uh, the message God has given him and the Ninevites respond. Uh, there is a revival there. And you would have thought uh, that things would have improved uh, from there in terms of Jonah's experience, that he would have gone home on his way rejoicing. But instead, uh, we looked at last time what we have called the Jonah syndrome. Uh, he is seething uh, that God should have mercy on these evil people. He was expecting uh, that under his preaching, uh, these people would not respond and that God's judgment would come upon the city uh, as he was threatening them. And Jonah builds himself a booth or a tent, a very inadequate uh, structure, and he's uh, taken himself out of the city, and he's sitting uh, on the outskirts, uh, looking on, waiting, uh, in bitterness, I think. Uh, he's in a huff with God. He's just waiting uh, for God's judgments to come upon them. And we spent some time uh, last time looking at this Jonah syndrome, how uh, common it is amongst evangelical Christians today. And there can be a variety of reasons, including the fact that we are all human, the best of men are men at best, but also uh, there is a lack of spiritual understanding and, of course, uh, the uh, indwelling sin uh, that remains in our hearts. But what I would like us to do this evening is finish this chapter and this book by looking at how God deals with us when we have the Jonah syndrome. Um, indeed, uh, even if we don't have that, uh, God doesn't give up on Jonah. Uh, God doesn't give up on you and me. That is one of the greatest encouragements I find in the Christian life. If it would have been up to us, we would have thrown in the towel long ago. But we were converted uh, because of the work of the Spirit of God. And we have kept the faith, not because of anything uh, inherent in us, but because of the workings of the same spirits. So let us look at a number of things here which are true of God in his dealings with Jonah and which are also just as relevant to us uh, in the 21st century. The first is this, God's patience with his child. How kind God is. If you turn to verse 6, God provided 
uh, here's Jonah having built himself this very poor tent. And this is the Middle East. And in the middle of the day, it's uh, so hot. Uh, it's... Uh, can uh, be most unpleasant. So this shelter wasn't giving Jonah much protection uh, from that. So God in his kindness uh, provides something. Verse six, and the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him for his misery. What a God we have. Uh, this uh, plant in the authorised version is called a gourd and it would have been quite a tall plant uh, providing enough shelter for Jonah. In the English Standard Version it's referred to as a castor oil plant. Um, I don't know if there's some irony there uh, because uh, when I was a boy and I was misbehaving uh, my mum would sometimes say uh, what I needed was some castor oil and that's what Jonah needed, uh, the sulking prophets uh, needed some castor oil. Uh, here is God's grace as well as kindness, not just towards an unbeliever. God had been gracious toward the Ninevites, uh, bringing them to a knowledge of salvation. But God is here gracious with one of his own. Uh, Jonah didn't deserve grace, even as a believer. He had a wrong, a critical spirit, God is still persevering with such. Um, I mentioned last time that Jonah is obviously in a huff with God. Do you know what that means? Uh, he's sulking. He, uh, he's, uh, as it were, turned his back. He's going out of the city and at the outskirts of Nineveh, building this shelter is uh, really a childish thing uh, to do. And if we were in God's shoes, we might well have said to him, well, if that's how you feel, just stay in your shelter. Uh, stew in your bitterness, Jonah. Uh, let the inadequate tents that you've built cause you to boil in order to bring you to your senses. Don't you feel like that sometimes uh, with uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ if they have a critical spirit towards you? You want to treat them in the same way that they're treating you. But God is so different. God is completely patient and gracious with his child. And there are too many hymns in our hymn book. Uh, when it comes to a meeting, I never know which ones to choose. We could have sung this tonight. Uh, this is what God is like. No earthly father loves like thee no mother eh so mild eh so kind bears and forbears as thou hast done with me thy sinful child aren't you glad this evening that the goodness of god makes him to be such a one I've got a few quotations tonight from Richard Phillips. He's written an excellent commentary on Jonah. This is how he puts it. It is this patient grace of God that gives any of us hope to persevere in faith. Since we are so much like Jonah in our indwelling sin, how many times God might have given up on us 
but he hasn't. He does not. More patience than the most loving mother of toddlers. And you do have to be patient sometimes. Not that I'm speaking from experience, but with, with some babies, when they're screaming, oh, how uh, many mothers are patient with them. Or the most enduring father of teenage children. And you know what teenage children are like? God bears with our weakness and sin and never, never gives up on our salvation. We just need to say how sad to see Jonah, in spite of such kindness and patience, uh, still uh, bitter. I know he's grateful for the shelter afforded by the good, but he's so small-minded, isn't he? Isolating himself from the Ninevites. Uh, don't we sometimes behave in that way? Uh, here is God uh, having been gracious to the people of the city. They didn't deserve it, but neither had Jonah as a Jew deserved the grace of God. And certainly Jonah wasn't deserving God's kindness at this moment. And yet he doesn't see that. He's just narrow-minded, full of his own little prejudices. And it's as if he doesn't want to contaminate himself with uh, the Ninevites, even though they've been converted, many of them. He wants to separate himself and build his little booth. And sometimes we build not booths, but our little chapels. Uh, it's interesting if you study the history of the church, especially in Wales, how many chapels are sometimes set up uh, as splits. And it's as if people are not setting things up because of a concern to preach the gospel, but because they want to gather around some lesser thing. Uh, there is... Um, uh, a saying, isn't there? I don't know if it's a joke or an anecdote of a Welshman on a desert island and he has built himself two chapels. Uh, the one chapel is the chapel he attends, but the other chapel is the one he doesn't go to. And that's the point, isn't it? Uh, we've got to have the chapel we don't go to. Uh, it's this a tribal attitude, and it's so different to what God is like. Or may we not be isolationists. Uh, may we be in the world, in the Nineveh of this world. We're not of the world. We don't belong in many ways in uh, the world in terms of its outlook and its mindsets. But God has put you and me where we are in order that we might be shining lights for the Saviour, both in word and deed. And surely uh, this time is a time where the world desperately needs the kindness of God through Jesus Christ to be displayed in our lives. Isn't that a better way? than just having a ghetto mentality where we're just like Jonah, looking on and judging people instead of being amongst people 
uh, and seeking uh, to live like a child of mercy. Uh, it's grace that has made us what we are. We don't have any rights to look down upon others. And the grace that has transformed us can transform them as well. So that's my first point. The patience of God dealing with Jonah and dealing with you and I. And then there's something else here. It's not just the patience of God. It's the providence, the providence of God. Uh, what do we mean by providence? What we mean by it is God in control, God overruling everything. Uh, so if you look at uh, your Bibles, uh, we're told, verse 6, the Lord God prepared the plants. God in his providence provided uh, this shelter for Jonah. And we understand that. But do you know what, my friend? Providence doesn't just describe the pleasant things in life. It also describes the difficulties. Uh, we rarely say that something is providential uh, if it's uh, something uh, difficult. But notice the same word is used of other things in the book of Jonah. Uh, let me just refer you quickly uh, to these. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 1, God provided or appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That was providential. And then the one I've quoted, chapter 4, verse 6, God provided a plant. But then God provided a worm to destroy the plant. Here was Jonah enjoying the shelter that the plants afforded. And the next morning when he woke up, Lo and behold, there's no shelter. The plant has withered. A worm has eaten it. And what we are told and what Jonah didn't know at first was that was God's providence. God had provided the plant and God had provided the worm. Do we see providence in that way? And then to make things even worse for Jonah in verse 8 of chapter 4, we're told that God also provided or prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. So half the providences of God are pleasant in the book of Jonah, but the other half are very unpleasant. And especially here in chapter four, it's as if one thing follows another. And isn't it just like that in your life? When difficulties come, they come all together, don't they? And what we must realize is that that is still the providence of God. God hasn't lost control when things go badly wrong for us. He is still overruling the famous verses, Romans 8, which says all things work together for the good of them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Good things unpleasant things, yea, even sinful things, they are all mixed together, as it were, by the divine uh, uh, cook. And all these different recipes mixed together, they come uh, out in uh, a tasty uh, piece of food. The 
bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Now, somebody may say, uh, Pastor, doesn't that make God hard? No, no. He's a good and a kind God. My first point. But, Pastor, isn't God here trying to crush his child? Oh, no. He's a wise father. And he's dealing with his child in love, yes. But there's such a thing as strong love. The love of God isn't some sentimental love. It's strong, even severe at times, because he loves you too much to spoil you. And what God, as a wise father, is doing here, just as he provided the fish to swallow up Jonah, and in the belly, in the dark, stinking uh, recess of the whale's belly, God was dealing with Jonah. So now, in the hot uh, heat, the Sirocco, as it were, the east wind uh, that makes Jonah feel faint, his soul, I hope, is being revived. What about us? Aren't we a bit like Jonah? And then to think of Jonah here, preoccupied, as I mentioned in the previous points, with his prejudices and narrow views. Uh, what's interesting is if you've got a uh, bee in your bonnets, about something, uh, it'll just get worse. Uh, if you look at Jonah at the beginning of chapter four, he wanted to die because God had been merciful to the Ninevites. And God asks him, verse four, is it right for you to be angry? Well, what's a negative attitude on Jonah's part? Uh, to rather die than have the Ninevites saved. But it gets worse. This pettiness eats into his soul. You see, it wasn't just the worm eating into the plants. There was another worm which was far worse. And it was eating into Jonah's heart. Uh, this worm of a critical spirit was shriveling, even withering Jonah's soul. And how do I uh, prove that? Well, Jonah then wants to die a second time. Verse 8, he wished death for himself. It is better for me to die than live. Why? Not because God has been merciful upon human beings now, but because a plant has been destroyed. And God echoes the question. He asked him once, he asks him twice. Is it right for you to be angry about the plants. And don't we see that in our churches? People who have uh, prejudice uh, about something, uh, even a petty view about something, uh, they go on and on about it, and it begins, like the worm, to eat into them. And they get more and more bitter over time. Uh, here's Richard Phillips again. Many Christians are this way. He's speaking of the states, but we can apply it to our situation. What concerns them most 
are all the little nothings of church life. The colour of the carpets. They're standing in the church pecking order. Minor details of the musical performance. Even the greatest of believers, like Jonah, can reduce themselves to spiritual nobodies unless they elevate their perspective over and above the small concerns of self. Oh, how many times lesser things have taken over people's hearts and sometimes they have wreaked havoc in a church. Uh, people getting hot under the collar about, say, a Bible translation or about this or about that. And it's not the gospel. It's not a concern for immortal souls. Do you know what Jonah needed? I know what God is doing to him here, is saying this, but I'm just putting it in today's terms. Uh, what you and I like to say to Jonah is this, Jonah, get a life, man. How can you be so preoccupied with this plant? You didn't uh, plant it even. Uh, it's, it's not even organic. Uh, it's, it's not uh, something that breathes. It's, uh, it's just something uh, that, that doesn't uh, have a soul even. The, the people of Nineveh, that they have been uh, saved, Jonah. That they are human beings and they were lost and their immortal souls have been saved for eternity and you've been used to bring that about. And now all you're concerned about is this plant. Jonah, you need to get a life. And can't the same be said of many Christians, maybe even us today? Get a life. Have you got your priorities right? Are our priorities the same as God's priorities? Uh, there is a Puritan book. I can't remember the name of the author, but the title uh, has stayed in my mind. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Have you got it? That gem that enables you to be grateful, even when others are being blessed more than you. You're still grateful. You see, the problem here with Jonah is not just that he's preoccupied uh, with his petty concerns. Uh, he's like some people, you just cannot please them. They are just constantly complaining and they're never going to be satisfied. Uh, there is no joy in them and they don't spread any joy to others. Jonah is like that at this moment. He wasn't always like that. Indeed, in the belly of the whale, he had been changed. But now he's reverting back to his old ways. Oh, how tragic to see a man that's just been used by God, even in a revival, go in this direction. But none of us are immune from this. The best of men are men at best. But there's something else here, I think, about Jonah as well. It's as if he's made a god of the good. Yes, God is good. Yes, God 
is uh, the giver of good gifts, as we used to sing in assembly this time of year. All good gifts around us, they come from heaven above. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things of life. We're not meant to be living uh, in a harsh way. There's nothing spiritual about asceticism. But what is wrong here, and what I believe is often wrong with us, especially in the West, is when we rely on these good gifts and we turn the gifts into something that we worship instead of looking to the giver and giving him thanks. Indeed, that is often the cause of discontentments. The Apostle Paul had said, I have learnt in whatsoever states to be content therein. I have learned how to be content when I suffer lack and when I abound. Now, that's harder, I think. You know, what do we do when the gourd is gone? That's the question. Where is the root of your contentments? When we think of God's providences, this is the second point still. It's always change, isn't it? There, there is never going to be a constant in this world. You and I are going to be up and down. Our hearts are going to be up and down. Life is going to be up and down. You don't need a virus for that to happen. There's only one constant, and that is God himself and the covenants of grace towards his people. Can I ask us, how are we with this lockdown? Are we learning contentment? Yes, even the Apostle Paul had to say, I have learned to be content. It doesn't come overnight. This is part of the school of Christ, be it the school of the gourd or the school of the belly of the whale or the school of lockdown. We should look at difficulties, not at some uh, obstacle, not as something that a cruel father has thrown across our paths in order to hinder our growth. No, no, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn more of the God whom we trust him. Does our contentment lie even in physical meetings? Now, please don't misunderstand me. There is something vital about meeting together. And once this lockdown is over, we should try to meet up uh, in a way that guards our health. And we should pray that in God's time, this virus or a cure will be found so that we will be able to go back to some form of normality. But when things are abnormal, are we just as content? Because God hasn't changed. And the church, in one sense, hasn't changed. Because the essence of the church is spiritual. It's the body, the spiritual body of Christ. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. Uh, Mr. Spurgeon, he had hard lessons in the school of Christ. Listen to Mr. Spurgeon here. Do not let your good become you a God, but let your good lead you to 
you a God. When our comforts become our idols, they work our ruin. But when they make us bless God for them, then they become messengers from God. Whether we are abounding or whether we're lacking, they can both drive us to God. When he gives, we bless him. When he withholds, we bless him. Because he is the one that we are relying on. He is our all in all. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that for a preacher to be laid aside is often the hardest trial because a preacher can live on his preaching. Oh, if you're a preacher listening, don't live on your service to the Lord. We live on our relationship with the Lord. If you're a Sunday school teacher, don't live on that. Don't live on your door-to-door work. Don't live on your youth work. Don't live on your pastoral ministry. For me to live, said Paul, Christ, Christ is everything. And then Mr. Spurgeon goes on to say, when you are brought to the very lowest, am I addressing somebody here this evening? When you are brought to the very lowest, it is that in extremis, when you're at your extreme, you can raise the song in excelsis, a song of glory to God in the highest. Out of the deepest depth, you can praise the Lord to the very heights. Brilliant. Um, Spurgeon is a tonic to the soul. In extremis can be in excelsis. Isn't that a lesson that poor John Newton had to learn? Uh, we sang the hymn. I've rarely chosen it for congregational singing because it's so personal. And as Tony said, so searching. Uh, but it mentioned Jonah's gourd, so I had to choose it tonight. Here is Newton. We've all been here, haven't we? I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And as you mature as a Christian, you realise every time you pray that prayer, things get much more difficult. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped, and many of us have hoped, that in some favoured hour, at once he'd answer my request. We want instant answers. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. We imagine, don't we, when we pray for greater blessing and growth, that that God will just bless us in uh, this positive way. But that's a very immature attitude. Newton had to learn it, and we have to. And Jonah had to. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand. He seemed intense, all these things coming together, to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed. And here it is, blasted my girds and laid me low. Blasted my comforts. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, a wise father. 
I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials and outward ones I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. Thy all in me. Jesus is greater than his gifts. A Welsh hymn says, My Riesin Bui, Nairodion. Jesus is even greater than his grace. My Riesin Bui, Nairas. I wonder, even not thinking of physical things that we can idolize, sometimes in the spiritual realm, we can desire blessing more than God. I wonder, is that why sometimes he withholds answering that prayer? Or, as I should say in the passage this evening, he's still in his providence, working his purposes in our hearts. And then one, one more thing. We've seen the patience of God, the providence of God, and I don't know why today I've got all my points starting with the same letter. It's just one of those things. The pity of God. The pity of God. God is working in Jonah. God is reasoning with him. Uh, look at verse 9. Is it right for you to be angry about the plants? But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plants for which you have not laboured nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Isn't that a strange ending? <laughs> the book ends with an open question. What God is doing here is reasoning with Jonah. And he's saying to Jonah, Jonah, you've got your priorities wrong. Jonah, you, you've learned the lesson once in the belly of the whale about salvation is of the Lord. That's grace, Jonah. And now you've forgotten that. You've allowed again your prejudices to rise up and take over. Jonah, can't you see sense? Uh, it's interesting that God here is arguing from the lesser to the greater. Uh, God is uh, saying to Jonah, Jonah, uh, you've loved a plant. Yes, it is organic, but it doesn't uh, have life in the same way as the cattle and the livestock would have life. They, they are above the plants. And it's certainly not as important as human beings. One plant and 120,000 human souls, immortal. Jonah, what's wrong with you? The pity of God, not just upon Jonah, but upon Nineveh, shines here. These people, they didn't know their 
right hand from their left hand. They, they didn't have a clue when it came to spiritual things. And God didn't just abandon them. He sent one of his own prophets to bring the message of salvation to them. And God used Jonah in that regard. And Jonah didn't see it. The pity of God. Where is it? In Jonah's heart. Jonah, if you're so concerned about the plants, why aren't you concerned? About 120,000 souls. Do you know what? Jonah ends in a very disturbing way. We don't know whether Jonah came back to the Lord. I trust he did. Because what the book is doing is going on from Jonah to you and me. God is asking us the question, what about you? Uh, you see, uh, I'm asking tonight, what about Jonah 4.11? But you say to me, Pastor, my Bible doesn't have an 11th verse. Yes, it does. I didn't see it. What about Jonah 4.12? What's your answer to the question? Do we care more about our plants in this day and age? Are our gardens more important than lost souls? Do we care more about our possessions, uh, our houses, our clothes, our gadgets? more than lost souls? Do we care about our little booths, our tents, our little comfort zones, our chapels maybe, if they are built around our particular likes? Oh, we're very good at saying, I dislike those other chapels, even though God has accepted those people and has saved them. We, as it were, uh, are obsessed about our little things. Uh, I remember when I was in Bible college, uh, uh, one student came uh, rejoicing because another student had come over to uh, the authorised version of the Bible. Th this person was actually rejoicing as if the man had been saved. Now, I love the authorised version. I still think it's one of the best uh, English translations that we have. But how can we set a Bible translation at such a level when we're not rejoicing over the salvation of immortal souls? How many people does Cardiff have? Do you know? It's more than 120,000. It's over 400,000. Do we rejoice that there are so many churches in Cardiff preaching this gospel of salvation? There is nothing wrong with any of us having our own convictions. That is right. But woe be to us if we elevate them to the same level as the gospel. And woe be to us if we make things that are neither here nor there and may even arise from prejudice and may even have spiritual terms put to them if we put them, elevate them to the same place as the gospel. What about us? It's time for me to conclude and come to the communion.
Jonah failed. You and I fail. The best of men are men at best. Look at all the great men and women of God throughout history. They will all have a feet of clay. Bar one. Only one man. Jesus Christ. The greater than Jonah. Uh, this is what uh, Tim Keller says. Before I read it, Jesus Christ went to a city, not Nineveh, Jerusalem. Jesus Christ stood on the outskirts of that city and he didn't condemn it. He wept for it. He wept for the people that were about to crucify him. He wept for what was going to happen to that city. If anyone could have stood in judgment upon us, it's Jesus Christ. He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Is anybody without sin? None of us are. Only Jesus Christ. He could judge. But wonder of wonders, he doesn't. Even when he was hanging on the cross, he cried out to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here's the quote from Keller. Jesus is the prophet Jonah should have been. Yet he is infinitely more than that. Jesus did not merely weep for us. He died for us. Jonah went outside the city, hoping to witness its condemnation. But Jesus Christ went outside the city to die on a cross, accomplishing its salvation. Oh, that we would just have a fresh view of the greater than Jonah, that we would see the grace of God. In Jesus Christ, that we would have a burden, the Saviour's burden, we can't produce it, that the Spirit would give us that burden for souls, that we would be like our forefathers, Howell Harris, George Whitsfield, Spurgeon, uh, these people that just burned with zeal for the Lord. And a yearning desire that immortal souls might be saved. And they didn't care about other things. All those little things, prejudices, they just fizzled out in the fire of divine love. Oh, my prayer for Cardiff is that we would have a new vision of Jesus Christ, the greater than Jonah, that, that we would pull down our booths, that we wouldn't stand on the edge, on the outskirts, but that we would go in to the city, as it were, and be where the people are, and that we, by our lives, but by declaring the word of life, would be those that God will use and even use mightily to bring people to himself. That can't happen 
until God first deals with us. And if, if he does bring revival or even a little touch of the Spirit into our midst, may we not be like Jonah afterwards, but may we stand back and say to God be the glory, great things he hath done for his name's sake.